Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How are you doing there? It is the podcast. John is nervous that his nemesis will be beaten, but you know, who knows? We'll be back to you. We're actually going to have two podcasts this week. We're going to have today's one and we're going to have one on Thursday. And you know what? From now on, we're going to have two podcasts a week. We had huge demand. Lots of people saying to us, why, why don't you do two? Why don't you do a bit of this, a bit of that? So what we're going to do is we're going to do two, two podcasts a week from now on. That is Tuesday morning drop and Thursday morning. Because we're not busy enough. Because we're not busy enough. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? It is ridiculous. But uh, what's the crack, my man? All it's good? All, it's all good, yeah. Good all week. Actually, do you know the weirdest thing I saw this week was... And you do see many weird things. I do. Yeah, yeah. It was Kim Kardashian's 40th. And recently. you weren't invited. I wasn't invited. But talking about presidential elections and stuff, do you know what Kanye bought for Kim? For An her no, 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 no. She has plenty of that. Right. But and I just think this is weird and kind of wrong. He bought her a hologram of her dead dad. What? And it was a the hologram with him talking. This is the dad a, who defended OJ. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the hologram pops up and he's talking about, from heaven, from heaven. And he's talking about, you know, I'm so proud of you, Kim, and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff, really kind of touching, schmaltzy kind of stuff. But could you imagine? Do you know what? You need to get out more, my friend. You really need to sit in there in the man shed. He's sitting there wondering, how will I spend my money? I know, a hologram. Of a dead lad, (laughs) of her dead alpha. I know, it's ridiculous. It was just bizarre, creepy. Creepy, creepy stuff. Because you imagine our two dead alphas coming back to look at us now. <laughs> look at those two. Come back to give you a clip in the ear. <laughs> yeah, we're just not talking shite for a living. Anyway, no, it's good. Do you know what I've been doing? I was reading, John, the nineteen, the eighteen forty-seven famine ship diary by a fellow called Robert White. Right? Of course was, you were. Yeah, yeah. I know. You do Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I read books about the famine. It's an amazing book about. It's a memoir of being on a famine ship that docked in Gros Eel in Canada, right. in Quebec, in JM's place, right? In Montreal. Yeah. And one of the reasons it docked in Gros Eel because Gros Eel was a quarantine island. It's funny that we're talking about COVID right. and diseases, whatever. Yeah. 
So Grosseville was this island off the coast of Montreal where everybody who arrived in Canada with diseases was quarantined. And it was same as Ellis Island. Same as Ellis Island, except yeah. that wasn't quarantined. Ellis Island, Ellis Island they all came in, whereas that was actually a quarantine island all right. for diseased people. Actually, I thought and Ellis Island, they, there was a hospital on, on sure that island. Was there? Yeah, I think so. But anyway, I can't remember. But it's, what, you know, what is interesting, we're going to talk about COVID today, is what this reinforces is that poor people die in huge numbers of diseases. And we're seeing this again with COVID all around the world, much yeah. higher incidence on poor people. It's extraordinary. Irish people with typhus. And then in the 18, in 1849, a typhus epidemic in New York and Chicago, the Irish were blamed for it. And what's really interesting was the medical records of German immigrants in mm. New York and Irish immigrants. German immigrants, much healthier, much better fed, much better diets, profoundly lower rates of affliction of diseases. Irish immigrants, much poorer, much more insubstantial, terrible diets, mm. pre-existing conditions, if you will, in New York and all over in Canada as well, much more likely to die. Is there something different about the ships that the Germans sailed over on compared to the They're Irish? Probably better. Probably much, much less. I mean, the Irish ships would have been incredibly cheap, huge overcrowding. Yeah. So if you get a, and there were no you, resources, as in yeah. there was no food or yeah. proper water. So but anyway, it's an interesting book. I mean, it's not quite Kim Kardashian's dad's <laughs> hologram, but if you do, if you are interested in history, it's the Famine Ship Diary by Robert White. Now, the other thing I want to tell you: the three mile. Oh, the three mile! That the got a bit of a reaction. Mile, yeah, a fella called Nile. My mother listened back, and she, she doesn't normally. She was she was roaring her head off laughing. No, 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 it's because my mother was listening to it as well. She was right. loving it. She was loving it, but it's true. But uh, do you know, there's a very interesting in economics called the law of unintended consequences. Yes, of course. Yeah. That you intend to do X, but you end up doing Y. A fella called Nile Larkin on Twitter loved it mm. and said, in the Blanche, there was a three mile pub in Blanchestown. Right. Okay. But the reason the Three Mile Pub, there was a dispensation in the holy hour given. Yeah. If you could prove, right, think about this, that you travelled three miles and you were a bona fide traveller, they had to give you a drink in. So the Three Mile Pubs existed. During uh, holy hour. So you could turn out. Right? Oh, my God. But of course, right, so, that, yeah. so that's, the, that's the economic <laughs> act, right? Right. Of course, the economic consequences or the unintended consequences is that everybody in... Dublin city came out to the Blanche, right? Yeah. <laughs> to get their gargles at Holy Hour, right? Yeah. Now, of course, the next iteration is even better. Then there came a secondary market because they had to prove to the constabulary that you had actually traveled. So they had to produce a bus ticket oh, from right. Dublin <laughs> bus, right? And then, of course, there yeah. ended up being a secondary market in bus tickets. So bus tickets were traded by oh, Alcos in the Blanche, yeah. right? To get into the pub. And there's a great case of a of, of a member of the RUC, although it wouldn't be the, be the Dublin Metropolitan Police. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Dublin Met picking up a lad, claiming that he didn't, <laughs> that he actually traded the, yeah. the ticket. And then the court case was the judge. You know, the, you know those little things, that those little like unicycles that measure things? Yeah. That the judge yeah. actually, so he claimed that his house was three miles from the pub. And indeed, it was three miles and a yard, and he got away with it. So there you go. 
The three wow. wild things. What I love is, and we always talk about in economics, it's the unintended consequences. You impose the holy hour, yeah. but you say there is a dispensation for bona fide travellers yeah. who've gone more than three miles. Okay. People are really inventive and creative and getting around these but This laws. is the whole thing. This whole thing about economics, it's all invention and innovation. Yeah. And you want to do one thing. It's like, it's like the lockdown. How do, people, how do people avoiding the lockdown? Yeah. 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 Now, speaking of the lockdown, John, we're going to do almost all COVID. We've never really done a COVID gig. Not fully, no. We're going to do all COVID today. And I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take two examples. Right? We're going to take the example of Israel yeah. and the example of Sweden. Right Now, both of these countries have a totally different approach to COVID. The Israelis are about eight weeks ahead of Western Europe. They have had an absolutely full lockdown, including, and this is an important point, locking down their schools. Yeah. They peaked at 9,000 cases a day, which I think is the highest in any country per head of population. They are now down to 600 cases. Mm. So the lockdown has worked. And we're going to go to a guy called Aaron Segal, who's a really highfalutin scientist in Israel, to explain how their lockdown has worked, what they did, what they didn't do. His message is interesting for us and the rest of Western Europe. He's saying, if you want to replicate the success of Israel in the second lockdown, you have, now this is interesting, you have to close your schools. That's something that we haven't done. Then we're going to park that conversation and we're going to go to Sweden Totally different idea. The Swedes, as you know, have said, we're not locking down. They said it's not even possible in our constitution to lock down because our constitution disallows the state from imposing its will on the people. It's very sort of, not even libertarian, but lots and lots of civil liberties idea in their constitution. And we're going to talk to a Swedish frontline doctor who believes that the lockdowns are not only not effective, but what he's saying is that even waiting for a vaccine, which is our policy Mm. and the policy of most West European countries, he said is fraught with danger because ultimately vaccines are going to take a long, long time. So what we're going to do today's podcast, going to take Israel, which is going to lock down max, see what happened there. Yeah. And Sweden, which is no lockdown at all, and see what happens there. And then let's us decide. Because there's a lot of talk about who's right, who's wrong. Let's just hear testimony from both these sides. Brilliant. Let's go. I'm delighted that we have on the line from Tel Aviv, Aaron Siegel, who's a computational biologist at the Weizmann Institute. Now, the Weizmann Institute is one of the top-rated science universities in the world. He's been developing models and all sorts of... I want to actually talk to you about uh, computational biology in a sec after this, but he's also... Aaron has also won the Overton Prize, which is a prize for scientists under... Young scientists doing extraordinary things worldwide in their field. So, delighted to have you, Aaron. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm flying. I'm in good form, Aaron. Now, listen... Talk to me about the second lockdown, but first, the, the idea that Israel was regarded as doing all the right things in spring, and then you got slammed in September. You're about eight weeks ahead, maybe seven or eight weeks ahead of Western Europe. What happened? Yeah, so um, I would say, as you mentioned, our first lockdown, our first uh, wave actually went very well. And I think the main reason in retrospect is that we closed down very early. So when we had very few cases, a handful of cases, we closed down the airports. We and, and we did a lockdown actually when we had only about uh, 150 cases a day. 
uh, which is relatively low. And uh, we reached uh, 600 at the peak, and then it started to drop after about 20 days. Uh, the drop was rapid. People were actually, the prime minister uh, went on uh, national TV and he said, uh, he told people, he didn't say Corona is over, but he said, uh, you know, we handled it uh, very well so far, go out and party. And so people went out and partied. And the exit from the lockdown was um, very rapid. There was really no uh, very well thought and carefully planned out exit strategy. And, um, and then at some point, cases started to rise. We even opened schools. We can talk about that in a moment because that was a main driver of the second wave. But in the first wave, we opened up schools. There were a few flares here and there, maybe a, a couple of schools where there were outbreaks. But by and large, things went, went okay because the overall number of cases was relatively small. Uh, but then uh, towards July, cases started to, to rise. And they started to rise at not at, a, at the rapid pace that they did in the first wave, but they did rise steadily. Israel tried to do a few things, but I think the main uh, mistake is probably that we defined a capacity for our healthcare system. So we defined a capacity of 800 uh, patients at the ICU that could be hand handled simultaneously. So I think one of the biggest mistakes from which everything else followed is that Israel defined a capacity of the healthcare system. We defined uh, 800 simultaneous patients at the ICU. That is the capacity that the overall healthcare in, in Israel can handle. And I think that when you define a capacity, you're just bound to reach it. It's like when you have a deadline, when are you going to submit or hand in what you need to do uh, just by the deadline, regardless of how long it takes? Absolutely. So, we, uh, all, we all know that feeling. We all know that feeling. Exactly. So Israel tried to do uh, a few things along the way. We had uh, the, the outbreaks initially came in specific cities. Actually, in Israel, it was a lot in the Orthodox uh, cities. And uh, it was very clear that what needs to happen is lockdowns on those cities. But our political structure was such that the Orthodox population is part of the government and they objected doing the lockdowns uh, on their cities, and, and the prime minister didn't have the political power to do that, so, so it, it wasn't really done. And although uh, there were efforts to try and lower the cases in those cities, it didn't really happen. And eventually, what happened is that there was mixture from these orthodox cities to the rest of the population. And similarly, there was also um, an outbreak in the Arab population in Israel. So the Arabs most likely due to the wedding season in July. Uh, weddings were the cause of the flare in that population. And so we also saw a rise there. So there were multiple settings in which we started to see the rise and just cases rose and rose. Uh, the other phenomena that happened, which I think is very much related to what uh, is going on all over Europe, is that uh, the second wave was characterized by a rise initially in the younger population. But uh, what, what happens inevitably, and this is also what's happening all over Europe and the U.S., is that inevitably a rise in the younger population spreads out to the older population. And uh, we saw that in every sector. We saw that across Israel. So when we opened up uh, schools in the 1st of September, that was the last trigger to go from 1,500 cases at the beginning of September to a record high and I think it's even perhaps even a world record high, or at least one of the highest numbers per capita of 9,000 uh, people a day 
that uh, we reached two weeks after we opened schools. Now, this is a, this is extraordinary, Aaron, because I want to talk to you about your lockdown. But here in Ireland, there was an absolute imperative on the part of the state that we we would go into a second lockdown, but we would not we would not close schools. And I think it's the state, the government trying to basically say life is kind of normal. But I want to come back to you now. Just we're going to go back to schools as spreaders because I think this is crucial and it's not really something we're hearing very much about in Ireland. Tell me about the lockdown and how successful it was because the figures have been quite quite spectacular from the peak and now the drop. Yeah, so uh, when we put a lockdown in place, uh, people uh, were actually quite sceptical, including the scientists were, were quite sceptical about the, not about whether it will succeed, it was clear that it it will succeed, but about the pace at which it will succeed because we were at 9,000 cases a day and uh, and so these are very uh, very high numbers, and uh, and it, and and the second lockdown was not as tight as the first one. So in the second lockdown, the government actually allowed people to do uh, sports activities. They allowed essential businesses to continue, and the definition of what is an essential business was expanded compared to uh, the first wave. So basically, if you had a business that did not accept outside customers, you could pretty much define your business as essential and you could keep it going. So we saw many more businesses operating. And so people were more skeptical about the success of the lockdown. And yet what happened is that the lockdown actually was much more successful than uh, the first one. And this is both in terms of the time it took for it to have an effect. So 10 days after the lockdown, we started to see a drop in cases compared to 20 days that it took for the first lockdown. And the rate at which we saw the drop was much faster than the rate at which uh, we saw the drop in the first lockdown. So this surprised many people. And I think if we analyze it, there's probably two main reasons for that in retrospect. The first one is the use of masks. So in the first wave, uh, masks were um, not so much in use. In fact, the whole world was still debating how effective they are. And in the second wave now, uh, everybody is agreeing that masks can really have a major benefit in stopping the spread of the virus. And so many people are actually using them. I wouldn't say that it's 100%, but it's really a a large number of people. And you can't really go around even to businesses and go in without a mask. So I think that's reason number one. And reason number two is that actually we closed down in common between the first and the second lockdown, we closed down in common all of those activities which are really uh, major spreaders of the disease. And these include the schools, these include the synagogues, these include uh, restaurants, pubs, all of those activities which happen in closed places where you have a lot of people and we know that there is a lot of uh, spread of the virus. So, Aaron, can I come back to you on the schools issue? Because, again, this is the what I'm, what I'm seeing now in Ireland is we went into a lockdown two weeks ago. The numbers are actually declining, not unlike your first 10 days idea there, that in actual fact you saw a quicker response. Masks are being worn, not mandatory, but common sense approach. Uh, Businesses have been closed, pubs have been closed, restaurants, all the same sort of stuff. But I'm asking you as a scientist, this idea of the schools, what do you think of keeping the schools open as a strategy? So I think first, you know, of all the things that uh, that we try to balance between uh, keeping things 
going on and uh, our moral values and the economy, I, I would say the education of the kids should probably be the highest priority. So we would like to, uh, to keep the schools open in general. However, I will say that if you keep your schools open, when the rate of infection in the community is high, then that will be a major driver and it will have a major contribution to the continuing of the spread of the virus. And the reason is quite simple. In Israel, when we open up schools with 1,500 cases a day, it was almost the case that uh, in almost every school, we had at least one, one kid who was uh, infected who came into school and we didn't know about him. And so we had spreads. And then uh, school was just ineffective because kids were eventually discovered as being infected. So their whole class and sometimes their whole school was closed down. So schooling could not continue on the one hand. And on the other hand, it also contributed to the continuing spread of the virus. So Israel is actually, I think, a very good case to learn from because we opened schools twice. Once at the end of May when we didn't have a high rate of, of infection, and that worked out very well. And once in the second wave, when we had a high rate of infection, and that did not work out well, we saw a lot of spread from the schools, and, and that just ended up bringing us faster to our second lockdown. So I will say that uh, you, should pro you can probably keep schools open when you have a modest, a low to modest rate of infection. When your rate of infections is high, there's no point in, open, in keeping the schools open because schooling will not be effective and it will contribute to the continuing spread of the virus. And just finally, in terms of the, the high numbers, you were talking this, you said Israel opened schools at 1,500 cases a day. Given that the Israeli population is about twice the Irish population, that would equate to 750 thereabouts cases a day in Ireland has been a high rate in the community and a rate at which the risk of opening schools becomes significant. At the moment, our caseload, I think, uh, per day is in and around eight or 900. So would you think that we're in the risk area? Given the numbers that you quote, I think you are in the risk area, yes. And if you think about the alternative, if you take certain measures of various forms of lockdown to lower the number of cases and lower the community infection from the numbers you quoted, then then you open schools as the first thing. I think that if you evaluate it in the long term of two or three months, you'll manage to keep your schools open and have more schooling days across that period compared to keeping the schools open. And overall, I think you'll manage to handle the pandemic in a much more effective manner. Aaron Seagal, listen, thank you very much indeed. And Aaron, I'm going to come back to you. Thank you so much for that. Sure. Thanks, Mo. Oh, thanks a lot. Not at all. Take care, Aaron. Bye-bye. We're now going to go to Sweden because Sweden, as you know, has had a totally different approach to the lockdown than any country in Europe. In actual fact, any country in the world. And the Swedes are quite insistent that their policy is working, has worked, and more to the point, what they're talking about is living with a virus as opposed to locking down and changing lives profoundly. Now, I'm going to go to a doctor who's on the front line in Sweden, Sebastian Rushworth, who's working in a public hospital in Sweden. Sebastian, you were writing a couple of weeks ago about your view and the Swedish view on corona or COVID. Tell me, where are we at now? Explain the logic of the Swedish position to me and more probably as a doctor, where you feel the Swedes have got things right. Well, 
the thing I, I guess many people don't understand is that uh, the the Swedish government, the Swedish state, could never have done the kind of hard lockdown that a lot of other countries have done, mainly because of the Swedish constitution. It it seriously restricts what the government can do in terms of restricting people, and and so even if the Swedish state had wanted to do a hard lockdown like many other countries have done, they, they couldn't have. So, I mean, I, I think that's probably the, the main explanation for why Sweden's gone down such a different path. I, I, I mean, I don't think Swedish politicians are smarter than politicians in other countries, and I don't think they're less sensitive to criticism from the media and and from outside actors, I think it, they've just been heavily constrained in what they can do. And, and that's why Swedish public policy has focused much more on recommendations rather than on hard uh, restrictions that people have to follow. So tell me about your experience as a doctor with COVID. Well, so uh, up until March, I, I was uh, kind of vaguely aware of COVID. I knew there was something happening in China, and then I knew there was something happening in in Italy and in, in Iran and in South Korea. But the Swedish authorities were saying, well, this isn't probably not going to reach Sweden. It's probably not going to become a big pandemic. So I wasn't really paying that much attention. And then the end of February, beginning of March, a lot of Swedes, especially from the area where I work, went uh, on holiday to northern Italy they go skiing in the Alps. A lot of people from wealthier suburbs and, and the hospital I work in is, a, is in a wealthy northern suburb of Stockholm. And uh, apparently a lot of these people who went to Italy came back with COVID because suddenly we were seeing an explosion of cases. And over the course of a few days, we went from a few cases and uh, the government was trying to uh, contain those cases to trace their contacts to some kind of uh, widespread understanding that this was exploding in society and that the best we could hope for was to flatten the curve. And that's really what I was seeing in the emergency room. From one day, I wasn't seeing any COVID patients. Really, a day or two later, I was. most of the patients I was seeing had COVID if you tested them, even if they didn't have symptoms. So, And then uh, that kind of continued for about a month. Uh, the vast majority of patients I was seeing were COVID patients. And then things peaked in, in mid-April. And after that, there was just this kind of steady decline. And uh, I was seeing less and less COVID patients. And uh, from, I guess, July to, to September, I didn't see a single COVID patient. I saw my first new COVID patient uh, last week. So to me, the disease has really disappeared if you if you compare with what we were seeing in, in March and April. Okay, so can we come back to Sweden right now? There's a lot mm. of talk about, are the Swedes doing it right? Uh, is this lack of a lockdown the right way to go? A lot of people are saying, well, Sweden's mortality from COVID in the early part was much, much higher than any of its neighbours. Why do you think the Swedish policy has been, as because I've seen your writing, is the right way to go as, as a medic? Well, well, as a medic, I would say we have to look at the big picture. We can't just focus in on a single 
disease and, and ignore every other disease. And there was a short period, a two month period where, where COVID was causing an excess in mortality. But if you look at the year as a whole, Sweden, Sweden's mortality is in line with previous years. So, I mean, it's, it's overall effect is marginal. And the thing I think is a problem is if you're just focusing on containing one disease, you're not considering what are all the other yep. negative effects. So you're worried about, you know, breast cancer, heart disease, all these mm. diseases that are killing people all the time. And now women can't go for breast checks. If you're presenting at the hospital without an, ex- an extreme situation, you're told to go home. Is that what you're worried about, that we're actually letting all these diseases bubble up? Exactly. Um, so, um, I mean, in Sweden, there weren't the hard restrictions that other countries had, but there was still kind of a general recommendation that people stay home, that people not, uh, I guess, kind of like in the UK, they had the same, the NHS, there was kind of a similar feeling. People didn't want to um, put more pressure on the the healthcare system than necessary. And, and there was also a lot of fear mongering in media. And I think that made people seek help. And, and we saw that in the statistics during the peak, there were half as many people being admitted to hospital for heart attacks as normal. And I don't think there were half as many people having heart attacks during that period. It's just the people were, were not seeking help. And I mean, that's just one example, but I, I think we need to look at the whole picture, partially the whole health picture, but also weigh in other effects. I mean, what are the the effects on children of being taken out of school for six months. How does that affect their development and mental health? And, and hard lockdown also results in, in much more unemployment. What is the effect of that on, on people's mental health, for example? I just think, so that's the one thing I think Sweden's done right. It's, it's kind of weighed the whole picture. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, Sweden went out with the recommendation that people over the age of 70 should kind of avoid social contacts unless they were necessary. People who were in risk groups should try to isolate themselves. But uh, about a week back, the public health authority said, we're not going to recommend that anymore because there's been a lot of evidence showing that, that this has actually caused a lot of psychological and physical harm to people being locked up in their homes, not having the, their usual social interactions and and that those harms actually outweigh the risk uh, from COVID. So, I mean, I think that's what the Swedish state has done right. It's looked at the whole picture and and not just focused in on one one little disease that's only actually responsible for a a tiny portion of deaths in this country at the moment. So what you're saying is that the health of an individual and a collective, a country, is not the absence of one particular disease, but is a much more holistic idea, which mental health, it's also those traditional diseases that that kill humans, usually heart disease and cancers, and it's about the welfare of the society. And you think that Sweden's got that right? Exactly. And are you worried now that Swedish cases are rising quite rapidly, it seems again, I think it's about 2,000 cases a day in Sweden the last while, in parallel with most of Europe, that in actual fact, we're going to go into another COVID spike everywhere we're in it at the moment, and the Swedish consensus might come under a strain. Well, so we're not seeing a spike at the moment. What what we saw in the spring was a spike. There was, throughout March, there was an exponential increase in hospital admissions and deaths. 
what we're seeing now is a gradual increase that's been going on for for about a month. And, and to me, what we saw in the spring was a pandemic. And what we're seeing now is an endemic virus, a widespread vi virus that uh, just like other coronaviruses, is more prevalent in the autumn and winter and less prevalent in the summer. And, and everything needs to be put in perspective. There has been a sharp increase in so-called cases, but at the same time, we're doing eight times as many tests now as we were doing during the spring. So it would be strange if we weren't finding more cases. That's why I think cases, it's really a nonsense statistic. The thing we should be looking at is hospital admissions, ICU admissions, deaths. And, and if you look at them, there has been a slight increase over the, the course of the last month, but, but nowhere near sharp enough to be exponential and, and to be kind of at the pandemic level. And it's possible I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that what we're seeing now is going to peak at a much lower level than what we saw during the spring. Talk to me about on the front line in Sweden. Here in Ireland, the major parameter is ICU capacity and everything flows from that. So we identify the ICU capacities, let's say it's 300 beds across the country, and then everything flows from that. How does the Swedish policy differ in terms of the parameters that have been set? Um, well, I think that is also what the, the Swedish state and public health authority is looking at, mainly ICU admissions, hospital admissions. From the start, they've been very clear that the goal is, I mean, there's been an acceptance that this disease is widespread. This is going to be something humans are going to be contending with for as long as there are humans, probably. This isn't something that's going to go away. And so the focus has been not on eradication, which is impossible, but rather on just flattening the curve so that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. And, and from that perspective, obviously, hospital beds, ICU beds, those are the most important things to look at. And at the peak in, in April, there were over 500 people in ICU in Sweden with COVID. And at the moment, there are about 60. So, I mean, it's, it's one-tenth at the moment. And, and as long as things stay at that level, I don't think there's reason to be worried because we currently have lots of spare capacity. We're not even close to being overwhelmed. And tell me, what do you think of this policy of let's wait for the vaccine? Shut down, we lock down, we, we open up, then we lock down again, we open up, but we wait for the vaccine, which is basically the policy of the vast majority of, of Western Europe at the moment. Mm. The, the thing I think is, uh, well, I think there are some problems with that strategy, uh, mainly that, well, we don't know how long it's going to take to have an, an effective vaccine. There have been optimistic projections that one's going to be available at the beginning of next year. But I think uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that it's at the earliest, we're talking about the middle of next year and, and it might be longer still. I mean, say there is a vaccine in June of 2021, but it's only 30% effective or 50% effective. Or is that going to be enough that we're going to say, well, we have a, a, a good enough vaccine, we're going to end lockdowns now, or, or are we going to say, no, we need to stay in lockdown until we have a vaccine that's 90% effective? I mean, who knows how long that's going to take. Historically, no vaccine has ever been developed faster than five, 10 years. And most vaccines have taken decades to develop. So, I mean, it's, it seems 
to, from my perspective, unrealistic to think that we're going to have a vaccine that's effective and safe by early 21 or even by mid 2021. And, and I guess it's more, more a question of how long are countries willing to stay in lockdown and, and take all the harms that lockdown means for the sake of uh, a vaccine that might not even work very well and, and that we don't know when it's going to be available. The interesting thing is that people are obsessed now with waiting for this vaccine, and this is what everyone has been told, but it does seem that the Swedish policy, if I might say so, at least is identifying the idea of living with COVID than hoping to live without COVID. Is that really the essence of the Swedish game? I I think so. There's just been, I mean... There's been a talk of the, like the strategy Sweden is pursuing as a herd immunity strategy, and I, I mean, every country is pursuing a herd immunity strategy because, regardless what we do, the end point is going to be herd immunity. And and I think from Sweden, there has just been a recognition from the start that this virus is here to stay, and we just need to find a way to live with it rather than pretend that we can eradicate it, which isn't even remotely realistic. Okay. Sebastian, we'll leave it there. Listen, thank you so much. No problem. Thank Great you stuff. very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 So that was quite interesting there, John. I mean, you have two yeah, was, profoundly yeah. differing views. First of all, two scientists, two medics, giving two completely different ideas of how to progress. I thought the interesting thing from the Israeli side was the schools are super spreaders. Yeah. And lockdown without locking down the schools ain't going to work. And of course, from the Swedish side, I thought what was interesting was this idea that the health is not just the absence of one disease. It's an overall holistic yeah. idea, yeah. which has got mental health, physical health, etc. What What is interesting, though, is typically the way things pan out these days, John, is that if you're left, left of centre, you tend to support the lockdowns. If you're right, right of centre, in parenthesis, mm. you tend to support the Swedish view. Mm. But the interesting thing is, traditionally, the left and the left of centre can't stand the Israelis, and the right and the right of centre can't stand the Swedes, yeah. and now we're all mixed up, a la COVID. <laughs> but you know what? There's a few things I want to pick up on. First of all, Sebastian from Sweden talked about herd immunity. And I read something from the WHO a few weeks ago that actually talked about herd immunity as a strategy is essentially immoral without a vaccine. Well, particularly with COVID, because what they've also found recently is the antibodies for people who have been infected with COVID don't last very long. They last only about five to six months, they think, compared to, you know, you get other diseases and and you have immunity for life. So trying to chase herd immunity with short antibodies and without a vaccine, they say is immoral. But well, they probably say it's immoral also because what herd immunity or I think it's probably better to use the expression community immunity. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it does seem to be part of the overall strategy against diseases, uh, these crowd diseases. I mean, it has to be part of the strategy. The problem is it's what you're basically saying is, your granny, your granddad, your mother, your father, if they're elderly, anybody who's got these pre-existing conditions, well, you know what? You're the price we have to pay for herd immunity. 
But and we that's, were, I think, we bolted at that at the very beginning because the Brits actually said that at the very beginning. Well, that's probably why we bolted it. <laughs> <laughs> the French had said it, we wouldn't mind. But actually, do you know you were talking about the left and Sweden being left? But, but As, Sweden is the paradise of the left. I, I it, was, know. it was up until now, and now they can't stand them. But ironically, what Sebastian was saying, it was the fact that all the Swedes jetting off to northern Italy on their skiing holidays. Brought it all back. Brought it yeah, all yeah, back. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But the other thing about what Iran was saying, which I thought was interesting, and there's a, a link here with the US, is that it was the Orthodox Jews, it was the, the religious guys who were completely against locking down in the first place or even wearing masks, which is very similar to the American Taliban, the evangelicals you know, refusing to wear masks. There's this kind of religious thing going on. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's kind of bizarre. It's a bizarre thing. If you ever see the yeshiva kids in Israel, those Orthodox Jewish kids who spend enormous amounts of time studying, Mm. enormous amounts of time studying, right? And the first thing is, is that they are all so pale and pasty looking because they're always inside. Mm. But the second thing is you realize that these communities live very much on top of each other. They have huge families. And, you know, we know that these are the sort of environments indoors, big families, people living on top of each other. This is what spreads it. But you're absolutely right. This idea that we have a religion and we're beyond yeah. the law and we're beyond the state. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Iran was basically saying that's where it started to spread in Israel. Yeah, big time. But the, the most effective element in Israel was wearing masks. So wear a feckin' mask. Yep. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And before we go, let's just have a quick hit. There's apparently an election happening today. I think it's in America. It's 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 kind of <laughs> inconsequential, but we feel obliged to uh, touch on it just before we go. Some um, Mickey Mouse election. Some Mickey Mouse election. I don't know, Biden, Schmiden, Trump, who knows? Anyway, we've got 
Kev Cunningham, our data and pollster expert. Kevin, let's talk about the poll of polls. Where are we at? The Americans, of course, going to the polls today. What are the polls telling us? Okay, so you have to break it down to the the key swing states, as they say, right? So Trump has to win in all of the three states where he's only marginally ahead of. That's Texas, Iowa, and Ohio. Now, he's marginally, only marginally ahead of them. And in a normal context, you'd probably say you probably won't win all three of these, right? Then after that, he has to win in states where he's marginally behind. So that's also Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. And then finally, after that, Trump also needs to win Pennsylvania, where he's behind by a similar margin than he was last time in the contest versus Hillary Clinton. It seems unlikely that he'll win all of these. So there's other states that he could pick up, but they're even further out than Pennsylvania, and he'd have to win a couple of them. And that includes Nevada, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. Uh, which he won last time, which is, you know, eight points behind him. So the kind of tipping point state really is Pennsylvania. And if you run simulations on the result, it's typically Pennsylvania that he needs to win to, in order to win all the others. You know, you kind of assume if he wins Pennsylvania, he'll probably win Texas, Ohio, Iowa and all them. So that's kind of, that would normally be the state that you'd want to watch. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania is likely to come in very late. So if it is a marginal contest, this is going to go on not just on you know election night, but it's going to go on for a couple of days. On the other hand, if Trump loses significantly, which is a significant probability because polling companies tend to be aware of their mistakes, they tend to kind of modify and adapt to them. And if it's the case that he loses Florida, then it's all over. And Florida is one of the earliest states to come through. So looking at Florida is probably one of the best things to do. And when the results come in, you know, the networks like CNN always try to maintain, you know, an air of excitement about the whole thing. So it's worth kind of having a look at some of the key and important counties within Florida if you want to make sure that you get an early, an early-ish night, which would be 7 a.m. And um, Kevin, the polls the last time in 2016 got it very wrong. So do you think yeah. the polls this time are are going to be any more accurate? So US state level polling is like appalling. Okay, so it's, it's really, really bad. It's like the, the, the modifications that they made between last time and this time were to include education as the weighting factor, okay, to make sure that they had people who had low enough uh, educational attainment in their polls. That's such a basic change. And there's so many other ways in which polling can be incorrect. There's an over-reliance, I think, in the US on telephone polling, but actually some of the online internet polls are really, really good. Some of them are rubbish, but, you know, there's a big difference. I mean, there are some polling companies I would look at to understand what's going on. And uh, if I can say that, that would be YouGov. But YouGov's figures do suggest by winning, by 350 to 360 electoral college votes. So I think that's probably where it's at. I mean, I've spent a lot of my time recently trying to understand who are the actual people who, who are going to change this election. Like, you know, in the last election, it was reported that 80,000 people, if they had changed their mind, that the, the, the result would have gone the other way. I've kind of been talking to those and trying to understand a little bit more. You know, I found out a lot of interesting things. But one of the things I think I found out is that the US is really, really partisan right now. I mean, I, I know that's not news, but they don't talk to each other about how they vote. So 
there is, you know, a distinct possibility of a shy voter. You know, and when you ask people, is this a new thing? They say, yeah. And even asking students, I was talking to one student in Texas who voted for the first time. It was a big thing. Texas turnout is, is really big right now. This student said, no, I know nine out of my 10 friends have voted, but I have no idea how they voted, you know? So I thought that was really remarkable. Kev, how significant do you think the high numbers of early voters is and, and what impact will that have on the, on the results, do you think? Well, firstly, the, the count is obviously likely to go on for a little bit longer because of how it takes a little bit longer to process those early voters. One other feature about the early voting is you can actually see who's registered to vote, who's requested those early votes and who's processed them. And in Florida, as I said, this kind of early state, you know, of those that have sent in their vote already, 40% are registered Democrats and 38% are registered Republicans. And there's an idea that Republicans are more likely to turn up on polling day, partly because Donald Trump himself has also said, you know, vote on the day. He doesn't trust the mail or whatever. When I looked at Texas, if you look at the counties that have had, like you can actually see turnout by county already. And it's it's almost at 90% of what it was in 2016. So even before polling day, we're likely to have as many people in Texas that voted, who had voted in the last time. But if you look at the relationship between which counties have had the biggest increase in turnout relative to 2016, and compare that against how they voted in 2016, it's not like the big Biden strongholds are turning out more than the places that voted Trump, like to a massive extent, you know, it's a, it's just a, a, a small relationship. So the enthusiasm to vote, I think, is probably happening on both sides here. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We, Kev, we're going to be back to you on Thursday morning. We're going to do a US special Thursday digesting what's happening. And I think we can tease out a little bit more of these things. But for now... It's a knife edge. Yeah, just uh, I'd say one last thing. Monitor Miami-Dade. If that's, you know, if that comes through, then you can kind of go to bed. Fair enough. Let's leave it there, Kev. Thanks so much. Okay, that was Kev. We're going to see you on Thursday for a biggie. Talk to you then. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.